The first thing to understand and the word to spread is anxiety is a part of who we are as human beings. It's woven into the fabric of humanness. It's part of our fight or flight response. Welcome to season three of My Amazing Body, a podcast where we explore interesting, unknown and misunderstood parts of your body. This is episode four of our special five-part series, focused specifically on mental health and well-being. This episode contains a first-hand account of what it's like to experience anxiety. If you or someone you know needs support, contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if it's an emergency, please call 000 immediately. One quarter of Australians will experience an anxiety condition in their lifetime. In this episode, we break down anxiety. What is it? What does it feel like? And how does it affect your body? We spoke with Dr. Manan Ray, a psychiatrist and director for adult mental health at Princess Alexandra Hospital. He says in order to understand anxiety, we must first understand fear. I think it is important for us to get a sense of fear because it is in the context of fear that one can understand anxiety better. So fear is a basic automatic response to a specific object, situation, or circumstance that involves a recognition of actual or potential danger. So it's part of, kind of fear is part of our fight or flight response. It's something that we all have. Anxiety, in contrast, is a much more prolonged complex emotional state that is often triggered by an initial fear. So if you have a fear of spiders, say, for example, like uh, arachnophobia, you could feel anxious about going to visit friends who live in a much older home where you might encounter spiders, or you might have anxiety about going to the movies because the film might contain a scene with spiders. So the basic fear is of encountering a spider but you live in a state of persistent anxiety about the future possibility of being exposed to a spider. So anxiety is a more enduring experience than fear. Uh, It's a state of apprehension and physical arousal in which you believe you can't control or predict potentially aversive future events. Dr. Carr-Ray says a certain level of anxiety is actually important for everyone but that there are two types of anxiety, good and bad. So uh, one of the ways to think about it is good anxiety and bad anxiety. What counts as good anxiety is uh, the anxiety that helps us kind of live our life to our fullest potential. So if you think about anxiety as the driving force for a lot of the things we do. So uh, one of the great gifts that human beings have is the gift of language. Uh, Language allows us to think about the future, think about future possible events, and to plan around those events. And if someone has no anxiety at all, in all probability, they would not put in the effort that they need to put in in order to excel. So, for example, the anxiety before an an exam that you're going to take. The anxiety of the exam helps you prepare and helps you focus. Of course, if the anxiety increases to a particular point, what we think of as the tipping point, then the anxiety gets to a state where it stops being helpful. Bad anxiety is a state of kind of 
part of the stress response or where we are worrying so much about future possibilities that we can't think straight and we can't act straight and we get overwhelmed by the feeling of anxiety. So rather than it being productive, it makes us ineffective. So it's helpful to think about anxiety as a spectrum over a continuum. At one end, anxiety being a helpful response, helps us stay safe, helps us achieve life goals. And on the other end, something that makes anxiety where it becomes disabling and stops us reaching our life goals. It's helpful to think of anxiety as being on a sliding scale. At one end, it helps you excel at life. And at the other end, it affects your day-to-day functioning. Dr. Carr Ray says it's when anxiety affects how you live your life that it could be an anxiety disorder. In the practice of mental health, we think of anxiety on that spectrum and a point where it begins to affect your functioning, where the anxiety turns into an anxiety disorder. And there are a number of different types of anxiety disorder. So some people tend to have panic attacks. You know, it's a wave of anxiety that overcomes them with a range of symptoms. And if you have those panic attacks at a regular frequency, you may have panic disorder. Similarly, for some people, they have significant anxiety about something really specific, like I mentioned the fear of spiders, arachnophobia, uh, or fear of heights, or fear of closed spaces, or fear of open spaces. And if it begins to affect their functioning in their day-to-day life, in their occupation, in their relationships, then it becomes a disorder, it becomes a phobia. Sometimes, if your anxiety is particularly bad, you may experience an anxiety attack. Dr. Carr Ray says it's a similar response to how you would feel if you were being physically threatened. Panic attack is a discrete episode of anxiety. Um, You get a whole host of symptoms. Some of them are physical symptoms. Some of them are cognitive symptoms, meaning to do with your thinking. Some of them are behavioral symptoms to do with the actions we take. And some of them are emotional symptoms. So the most common physical symptoms that you get are to do with people feeling that their heart rate has increased. So out of the blue, the panic attack comes on, they get palpitations. They feel a bit short in their breathing or kind of their breathing becomes labored, a feeling of tightness in their chest. Some people feel as if they can't swallow or their mouth is going dry or getting a choking sensation. Some people begin to feel dizzy and are a bit lightheaded. Some might have sweating, hot flushes, chills, Many would kind of feel butterflies in their stomach or feel a bit nauseous or feel that they are knots in their stomach. Tingling, numbness in their arms, legs, weakness, legs feeling like jelly, needing to sit down. There are a whole host of physical symptoms that one would get. And it might feel quite scary to begin with. But actually, a panic attack or an anxiety episode essentially This is a scenario which would be very common if you were under physical threat. So if you were being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, your heart would begin to beat fast and you would try to escape to safety. The problem with a panic attack is often there isn't a specific trigger. There isn't a tiger chasing down this person. Um, So all these symptoms that happen, the physical symptoms, uh, are quite difficult to contextualize for the person. And it gives rise to a range of cognitive symptoms. So they would have the fear of kind of losing control or as if they are kind of losing the plot or they're going to have a heart attack or they're having a stroke. 
there's a whole host of symptoms, cognitive symptoms, which relate to those physical symptoms that the person gets. And this then gives rise to the fight or flight response. People begin to hyperventilate, they are restless, they might pace about, so behavioral symptoms, or they might freeze or they have difficulty speaking. And once someone has a panic attack, because it's so anxiety provoking, uh, they often worry about how a future attack might look like. It's something that we call anticipatory anxiety. So it's fear of fear. You are afraid of being afraid. So they feel nervous, they feel tense, they are wound up. So their baseline anxiety is already higher. So they feel jittery, on edge, and it is easier for them to tip them over that um, kind of curve into a full-blown panic attack. During a panic attack, the area in your brain responsible for dealing with threats is activated. It's activating the limbic system, the amygdala in the brain. It's a threat response center of the brain. It's been there from the time we were hunter-gatherers. So if you kind of see a threat, you respond to a threat. The problem in modern day is that, as I mentioned, there aren't saber-toothed tigers chasing us down. But the threat is in an email, the threat may be in a text, the threat may be in traffic. There are different ways from where we can get threat perception. And that then kind of gives rise to those physical symptoms and along with those cognitive symptoms. Some people are more vulnerable to anxiety conditions than others. But Dr. Carr Ray says it's not necessarily all about your genetics. People carry genetic vulnerabilities, but the current theory is that it's a gene environment interaction. So people might have family members who are suffering from anxiety, but that in itself is not enough. There are a range of things which can predispose a person to have an anxiety disorder, which relate to nurture rather than nature. Um, This could be childhood trauma. Um, This could be adverse life events that the person is going through, Uh, really stressful times when a certain amount of worry would be expected. So if you think of each of us having an elastic limit, if we are stretched, each one of us would break. The question is whether we would break or not. The question is when we would break. So people who are struggling with anxiety might have had adverse life scenarios that they have been dealing with, which would have taken up a lot of their headspace to begin with. And then the anxiety gets superimposed on that. Part of that, as I mentioned, is a lot of our anxiety relates to the future possibility of things that might not go well. So you can understand the context in which the anxiety begins to develop till it gets to a point where it becomes disabling and turns into a clinical disorder. While you can experience an anxiety disorder without having depression, Dr. Carr Ray says that often the two conditions are linked. Anxiety disorders are comorbid with depression. That's one thing that it's um, often found. Sometimes depression leads to anxiety and other times severe anxiety with its limiting effect on life can actually lead to depression. So there are certain physical health conditions uh, which kind of give rise to anxiety-related symptoms like hyperthyroidism can manifest as high levels of anxiety, but also Uh, chronic physical health conditions in their own right due to the physical uh, challenges the person has got can give rise to anxiety as well. 
Learning about your condition and looking after your physical and mental health is a key element to managing an anxiety disorder. There are a number of effective treatments, starting from self-help. There's a lot that people can do by themselves around maintaining their physical health, their mental health. They can learn about anxiety because knowledge is power in this condition. Um, There is a whole host of literature now around mindfulness uh, and practicing gratitude and kindness in our day-to-day life, which helps connecting up with people, taking notice, embracing nature. So a lot of self-help stuff that people can do. And then there is professional help in terms of uh, medication that helps with anxiety, as well as uh, talking treatments. Um, The most common and the one for which there is the most amount of evidence is cognitive behavior therapy. There are specific kinds of treatments for the different kinds of anxiety disorder, CBT or cognitive behavior therapy, the treatment in which we look at thoughts and behaviors and the feelings they generate, as well as core beliefs and attitudes that we have is the one with the most amount of evidence. But there are other evidence-based practices as well, like exposure and response prevention for obsessive compulsive disorder, eye movement desensitization for post-traumatic stress disorder, Uh, acceptance and commitment therapy uh, is another good way of dealing with anxiety disorders. A lot of the common phobias, they respond very well to systematic desensitization. So there are different kinds of therapeutic approaches that can help. And uh, these therapies run anywhere from uh, six to 10 weeks to six months to a year. And some people would need a combination of both medication and therapy. And together, that's what's needed. Uh, But person-centered, individualized plan is what would be developed if you are kind of struggling with anxiety, either by your GP or a specialist in mental health, whether that be a psychologist or a psychiatrist that you're seeing. Dr. Carr-Ray says that if you think you're experiencing an anxiety disorder, you should book to see your GP to discuss different treatment options. There is a lot of helpful literature out there. So the first step in the process is to learn a little bit about the anxiety disorder itself. So you can have an informed discussion with your GP. So if you believe you have an anxiety disorder, I would recommend going to the Royal College of Psychiatrists website. There are a number of trusted sites that are available where you can get further information about anxiety disorders. And I think that would be the first step to undertake. The next thing to do would be to get an appointment with your general practitioners. Most general practitioners are very good at guiding a person based on the severity of their condition towards either getting a mental health care plan, directing them towards psychology. If they are very unwell and need a psychiatrist's opinion, they would help organize that in terms of doing a referral. And then a psychiatrist can provide an opinion uh, or a psychologist would do an assessment based on uh, and work out what Uh, psychological treatment is indicated, and then work collaboratively with the person to address the anxiety. Of course, some anxiety disorders are so disabling that the person cannot leave the house, particularly if they have agoraphobia, so fear of open spaces. And that is a particularly challenging condition to get help and treatment in if you are not able to leave the home. Having said that, Due to COVID-19, there's a lot of telehealth interventions that are now being done. So psychological interventions can be delivered over telehealth. 
Your GP will also be able to help you develop a mental health care plan. Generally, in a mental health care plan, together they would decide a psychological intervention that might be indicated. So often they would refer the person on to a psychologist, primarily in the private sector, where they can get these interventions that I talked about previously, like cognitive behavior therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy. And, and they would normally, it will be a six session that they would begin with, and then they can increase the number of sessions if that is indicated by the therapist. Keeping your mind engaged with new ideas and experiences is an important part of strengthening your mental well-being. Doing regular mental challenges helps train your mental pathways. Let's give it a go. Can you solve this brain teaser? We'll reveal the answer at the end of the episode. If you drop me, I'm sure to crack. But give me a smile and I'll always smile back. What am I? One in seven Australians is currently experiencing an anxiety condition. We spoke with Michelle, a Beyond Blue ambassador and speaker, about her experience with anxiety. I have been a volunteer with Beyond Blue now for or since 2017. So I started out there um, going into schools and workplaces and talking about my own personal experience with anxiety. And throughout that time in sharing my story, I actually started studying counselling uh, and am now a qualified counsellor and work in the domestic violence space. You might hear some funny scratching or panting in the background throughout this interview. Don't be worried, it's just Spinifex, Michelle's toy poodle. My dog's scratching away in the background, who you may hear from time to time. Um, he's a little toy poodle, he's black all over and he's got a white little beard. Michelle was diagnosed with anxiety in her mid-twenties when she spoke to her GP after suffering some panic attacks and struggling with prolonged anxiousness and shortness of breath. My diagnosis of anxiety was quite, well, late in the piece that I would consider. It was in my mid-twenties, so I kind of looked back on a lot of thoughts and feelings that other people would characterise as, oh, you're just a warrior, or you're a perfectionist, or you plan too much, or uh, anything along those lines. And I would struggle a lot, but then it wasn't until I had actually done therapy for a while uh, and I was still really struggling with some of the physical symptoms of anxiety. So it was sort of your classic anxiety case, I guess, in that I was, you know, having panic attacks. I often would have a racing heart or a tight chest or notice I was walking around and holding my breath even sometimes. Initially, Michelle struggled with her diagnosis and wasn't able to accept it until she recognised it as a clinical problem that could be treated. I eventually went to a doctor that was referred to me by my therapist, who was somebody who I really trusted um, here in Brisbane. And I went to her and was diagnosed with generalised anxiety disorder or GAD. Normal anxiety, I've come to learn, is you know, you might have an exam, you might have a job interview, you might be going on a first date. Feelings of anxiety and nervousness are normal in those cases. But when it becomes a clinical problem is when those stresses have passed and then you're still having those physical symptoms and feelings. So I suppose I just really struggled with um, 
knowing that that was the case, that it was something clinical. And it wasn't until I actually engaged with a therapist and then went to a GP, I went on medication that really helped, though that's not always the right path for everyone, but for me it was and continues to be for now. Michelle says that her day-to-day life and relationships were being affected when she found herself constantly unable to focus or concentrate on tasks. I noticed that it started to, the anxiety started to affect my day-to-day life when I would be at work and I would be sitting in front of the desk and I would feel feelings of disassociation. So my mind would wander constantly and it wouldn't necessarily be about anything in particular, um, but it was just not being able to sit and focus and concentrate. Like I would always just have this level of feeling as though I was floating above or or that I wasn't really present. And for me, it also then manifested as, I don't know, constantly worrying that I would get fired or that I had done something wrong or over-assuming responsibility. And then when I went there, it was, oh, okay, so if I get fired, then I will be homeless because I can't pay my rent. And then, oh, this next thing will happen where then my relationship will break down and... Uh, I won't be able to work again. And so it would just become this catastrophizing that would start off with something really simple and it was affecting me really badly, both physically and mentally. So I think in terms of relationships that it affected with other people, so I would kind of have my little, um, I would call them my committee of reassurance, you know, seekers, where I would go to my sister or my best friend or people like that who were close to me and I'd constantly need reassurance about my decisions or that something wasn't going to go wrong. Um, And when I was even younger than that, I noticed that I would have more people that I needed reassurance from. Um, So it would be a lot more friends or um, even colleagues at different points where I would need a lot of reassurance. I think when it was at its worst, I would also, I, I would just really probably be a bit annoying if that makes sense and I say that with like a lot of compassion and love for myself now. For Michelle therapy has been the biggest aid in helping her manage her anxiety. So some of the strategies I put in place to help manage my anxiety were straight away therapy. Um, Talk therapy really helped for me so being able to make a weekly appointment or fortnightly appointment with a therapist that I trusted. I I can't emphasize the value of that enough. It was just such a life changer for me having somebody who I could work with who was impartial, who got me, who understood my history, who started to understand my family, the experiences that I'd have and they treat you with love and respect no matter what and they don't have a vested interest in you know, the relationships within your life so they can be more impartial. Michelle also tried lots of different mental wellbeing activities before she found the right ones to help her. In general, it was sometimes just a trial and error. So I tried yoga, I tried meditation, I hated meditation, I couldn't sit still. So yoga was really good for me in being able to be in my body and become more present with it. And then reading as well. So books on the topic so you know I got really into Brene Brown I got into the happiness trap you know acceptance and commitment therapy so I I started to identify things that worked for me so not everything did um, but being able to read in between sessions and 
think on things and then bring them to sessions really helped me. Um, so obviously I'm a big advocate for that sort of thing. And just in general, and I'm not always perfect at this, I still struggle to get a good balance with it, but just that self-care kind of stuff. So something that I've learned is that, you know, when we kind of get triggered by something, whatever that might be, we can then go into our limbic brain or our emotional centers and, and that's when we have those anxiety attacks and those panic attacks, right? So for me, it was about, okay, how do I regulate that? How do I come down from that? So it might be something as simple as going for a walk or playing with my dog. During COVID, I found painting classes, you know, the sip and paint ones, they were doing them online. So anything that's kind of repetitive and rhythmic and in nature or, or you know, all those sorts of things that you did as a kid. Uh, and and it kind of sounds a bit simple, but all of that stuff really works. And just noticing your breathing uh, and your what you're feeling in your body and asking myself you know is this thought helpful and and or is it unhelpful if I have this thought do I have to act on it. For Michelle her panic attacks manifested differently to how she expected. Some people describe it that they feel like they're having a heart attack like it feels like they're going to die and some people have gone to you know EDs and and thinking that they're having a heart attack or that something is really wrong and then they sort of go, oh no, this is a panic attack, this is a mental health thing. So that's a revelation for people in and of itself. I never felt like I was going to die or that I was having a heart attack or anything like that. I, I suppose when they started to happen quite badly, I knew enough to know that it wasn't that. Um, but I did have this intense feeling all of a sudden and it could come on from nowhere where I would get the racing heart and the sweating and the disassociating and obsessing and, and just feeling awful. And for me, it would manifest as crying. So all of a sudden, it would just be this uncontrollable need to cry and, uh, you know, that my breathing would quicken. And then I'd cry, I'd let it out, and then it would subside. And then it would be my, my body would then sort of still feel a bit rattled, but the intensity of it had stopped. And that might last, you know... Um, a couple of hours or you know it might take until the next day for my body to fully recover and I think the thing about panic attacks um, when you start to get them uh, is that you kind of think oh god when is it going to happen again so you start panicking about panic which isn't fun uh, at all. Michelle says that after her diagnosis her relationships with friends changed as they were able to understand her better and she found better ways to manage her anxiety. My relationships with my friends and family started to change after the diagnosis, but certainly not immediately. It wasn't just a click of the fingers and then I'm cured. And uh, now we all know why. I think it started to change at random. Like I would notice randomly, oh, I'm doing a bit better with how I'm coping or I would need people less or I would understand that I go to my therapist and unpack some of this more complex trauma stuff or, you know, this situation that's going on in my day-to-day -day life. So I started to utilise healthier coping strategies and therefore I needed other people less in that context to share the burden. I started to be able to distinguish when I could just share some things that, that didn't therefore mean I was obsessively reassurance-seeking. So I started to feel more in control myself. Everybody still needs, you know, love and connection and support and all that sort of stuff. But when it becomes to a point, I think, where you're really physically 
struggling and mentally struggling, you do need to reach out to professionals for support and to help nurse you back to a point of balance and confidence within yourself so you can function day to day more effectively and lean on people more um, in healthier ways. Navigating relationships can still be hard, but Michelle says that when it comes to supporting someone with anxiety, it's important to listen to them and not jump straight into trying to fix the situation for them. Sometimes I'll chat with my partner and, you know, he'll sort of go, what's wrong? And I can't really articulate what's wrong. I can't really say what's happened and, um, you know, say in that circumstance he might try and just hug me and just be with me and just that really lovely kind of connection stuff um, where I say, I don't actually know, but this is what I'm feeling and I'm crying about it and then it subsides. And that's actually a really lovely thing for us now that we've been able to identify that. But I do understand the temptation when that does happen, whether it's a partner or a friend or whoever it is, going, what's wrong, we'll fix it. And quite often once you've got into that heightened state, you can't fix it in that moment. So I think something I would say to partners and friends of people who do struggle with anxiety and panic attacks is, is just let them have their physical reaction, let that play out. And then later on, once they've regulated it again, once they've calmed down again, come back to, okay, so was that about anything? Is anything going on for you uh, that, you know, do you need to go for a walk, do some cooking, do some gardening? Or is it, you know, is it, do you need to book a therapy session? Do you need to talk about something that's going on at work or in our relationship? And then do that kind of analysis stuff. When someone's in that space, it's not the time to do the analysis or to blame them or to tell them to calm down because that has never worked for anybody. If this story has brought up any feelings for you, you can talk to someone at Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if it's an emergency, please call 000 immediately. When it comes to supporting a friend or loved one with anxiety, Dr Carr Ray says staying connected is the first step. As a family member or a friend, one has to remember that the way anxiety perpetuates is through avoidance. People who are anxious about something, because the physical symptoms are not desirable, they start avoiding things in their life, things that are meaningful to them, pursuits that are meaningful to them, other people that are meaningful to them, they start avoiding them. So the first thing to do is to stay connected with the person uh, and support them through this. Keep the conversation going with them. Understand that if they stand you up on a night out, it's most probably their anxiety rather than they doing it to you. So develop that context, that perspective. Get to know a little bit about their anxiety disorder as to what type of anxiety disorder is it? Is it panic disorder? Is it obsessive compulsive disorder? Is it post-traumatic stress disorder? Is it specific phobia? Is it social phobia? If you get to know a little bit more about it, you can have an informed conversation with them and show a degree of empathy for the anxiety that they are struggling with. So it's being with rather than doing to and walking with them on their recovery journey. Michelle feels that anxiety is often not recognised as a mental health condition, and this is one stigma that she would like to see changed. So I think some of the key stigmas around anxiety are just Ugh, everybody's got that these days or they just worry or they just need to calm down or whatever it is and we feel or well, people who suffer with anxiety 
can probably struggle with shame around that. So we know when we're in shame, then we tend not to talk about it as much. So that's what I'd like to see change. This is idea that it's just something that everyone has and you just need to stop worrying and get on with it. Because as I identified earlier, it is something clinical. It is a struggle. It might come up more often than not at different points in your life. But if you can learn to be with it and to recognize what it is and recognize your triggers, then you're going to have uh, a different kind of life. So that would be the key stigma, just, just thinking that it's not a proper mental health condition, maybe. Dr. Carr-Ray says understanding that mental health conditions are common is an important step when it comes to tackling stigma. The way to tackle anxiety is to spread the word that one in four people would suffer from some kind of mental health challenge of which anxiety uh, is often a very common component. So in psychiatric circles, we say that if you have got uh, three friends who are not depressed or not anxious, then most probably you are. Uh, that's how common it is. One in four people will have a mental health challenge. So understanding that it is very prevalent, people don't talk about it. So the stigma prevails. If you start talking about anxiety and anxiety disorders, you will find that a lot of stuff uh, would come out of the woodwork. So in, in a family tree, if you have 20 people, just by the sheer statistics, there are five people in there who have got some mental health challenge. And again, anxiety would be definitely present in any family tree. So getting the conversation going, talking about it, will tackle stigma. Perhaps starting from that point that anxiety is a part of who we all are. Dr. Carre says there's a lot that people can do for their mental well-being and anxiety. If you are aware of anxiety as a concept, as a construct, you will find that you will deal with your anxiety better. So learning about anxiety. I think, I think that is the most important thing. Knowledge is power. Get to understand the kind of anxiety you have, uh, the triggers that kind of bring the anxiety to the forefront, um, your physical symptoms. Once you know your physical symptoms, you will find that they have a lot less power over you. So keeping on learning is really, really important. Looking after your physical health, getting out there in nature, in the great outdoors. So make use of the sunshine. It has a healing effect. Take note of the world around you mindfully um, and, and embrace nature. Do these things with your friends and family, staying connected and showing kind of gratefulness and kindness, showing gratitude for the blessings in our life. I'm not saying that we all need to become Pollyanna, but um, I think it does help if we feel that there are certain aspects of our life that things are going well, um, certain aspects in which we may be struggling, that's, that in a way is, is life, and, and showing kindness towards others, because that then comes back in, in spades uh, for our own well-being. So, so there's a lot that people can do in terms of helping themselves, uh, helping their mental well-being, helping their anxiety. For Michelle, mental well-being is all about exploring different activities in order to find the one that fits right. And starting small is a good way to go. More and more we see in, you know, therapeutic spaces the value of animals and things like that. So, yeah, don't underestimate the value of, of getting a, a dog or a, any kind of animal that you love or want to care for. 
In, in terms of general stuff that's helped me with my mental health or things that I've tried, um, some other things, you know, staying off my phone, which sounds like a really cliched one, but that was really making me unwell, you know, just um, the comparison to other people or uh, looking up other profiles. Like, it's embarrassing to admit, but I do it. I would just encourage people to explore different things that work for them in terms of... Uh, there's all different kind of creative and expressive therapies out there. There's all different kinds of yoga and meditation and exercise and, uh, you know, things like that that you can try and don't be ashamed if one thing works for you and the other doesn't. So it's okay. You just figure out what works for you and keep it simple. So sometimes I think we think, okay, well, I've got to go and get a gym membership and I'm going to do yoga and I'm going to become, you know, this incredible person who's who's you know completely aligned you know the clean eats and all that sort of stuff and a friend of mine who who struggles with anxiety as well like he'll just go on a 15 minute run it's just 15 minutes he's like I can do 15 minutes I don't need to do any more and that helps him regulate at the end of the day so little things like that. Improving your mental well-being isn't hard and can be achieved by making just some small changes like going for a short walk calling a friend for a chat or learning something new which you've done just now by listening to our podcast. If you'd like some more tips on improving your mental wellbeing, head to our website, qld.gov.au forward slash mental wellbeing. You'll find a link in our show notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of My Amazing Body, Mental Health and Wellbeing. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. Did you guess this episode's brain teaser? What always smiles back? The answer is a mirror. Congratulations if you figured it out. Thank you to Dr. Manan Ray and the team at the Princess Alexandra Hospital for lending their time and expertise to this episode. And thanks to Michelle for sharing her lived experience with anxiety. My Amazing Body is brought to you by Queensland Health. Thanks to my podcast colleagues, producer Jess, Carol, our audio technician, and Helen on music and sound effects.